Checking back in, State Representative Tacky Chan of Quincy is joining us for a, another Tacky Talk podcast. Hey, Tacky, how are you? Morning, Joe. Uh, happy to be here on a clear uh, Wednesday morning on the 13th of September. Well, shocking their son. Yeah, well, don't don't get used to it. <laughs> it won't last long. Uh, you've been watching the weather. Well, well, you all been watching the weather report. I mean, Hurricane Lee, I believe, is going to be making a rush by sometime on Saturday, I believe. Yeah, it looks like kind of a windy, rainy day on Saturday. Let's hope it's not uh, too bad for folks and uh, just gets on out of here quickly. Well, you all see the flood damage up in North, North Andover. I mean, holy. I mean, it's it's bad. Um yeah. toward the location, and you've seen the news coverage. I mean, roads are completely ripped up in that city. The oh, yeah. That ripped Lemonster, away. too, got pummeled. Uh, I saw the commuter rail tracks just hanging in midair with the ground under it just washed away. Yeah, I mean, uh, the last time we've seen rains was bad, but but then again, it was really a, a very contained period. It was back in uh, St. Paddy's uh, Day weekend back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had the astronomical high moon uh, and uh, the storm hitting at the same time the moon did and the winds blowing uh, straight off the ocean, basically pushing water uphill. Uh, remember the cars uh, over at State Street uh, floating around? <laughs> I remember it well, yeah, and uh, we don't want to see that again, for sure. No, it's even though it's been very wet, uh, thankfully we've not had a deluge or a form where it was multiple days of a deluge. We've just been getting wet. But on the flip side, the trees can't take anymore. I mean, I think there's a saturation point where the ground gets just so muddy and the tree roots just can't take anymore. Right, that's the fear is if the winds pick up, um, the trees aren't going to be able to hold. Yeah, the ground's just too much water, and you know, it's kind of fat, but I mean, meantime, you know, grass and your your shrubbery and some of your trees are just having a field, uh, field day this year in terms of growth. Oh, I know. We're mowing lawns <laughs> all year long, it seems like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've, I've struggled uh, myself trying to get my lawn done in between weekends when actually home to actually mow the lawn. Um, <laughs> as we know, pick events are picking up uh, locally uh, during weekdays and nights. Uh, I've not received anything in the month of December yet. Um, I still believe that People are going to be calming down their indoor events when we the holiday season, uh, especially with the COVID spike going on now, which is similar to the year before. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be um, nearly as uh, deadly, but still dangerous. Right. Yeah. Updated vaccines approved just this week, actually. Yeah. Again, obviously, uh, you all know, I'm very much encouraged people to get vaccinated. I go and get vaccinated as soon as I can get vaccinated. Um, I do care for a mom who is immune compromised. And it's very important for me to, to get vaccinated. Um, we're probably going to increase our mayor was, mayor, uh, mask, sorry, mask wearing uh, as we um, you know head into the winter months. I'm going to be doing a little traveling again uh, starting next week to go to an electric vehicle policy conference for legislators uh, in Ohio. So I'm hearing friends uh, are getting COVID largely from vacation travel. Uh, so the degree of caution there is a combination of not just being trapped in the train in, in the plane, now, well trains too, but especially planes. Um, but also you may be going to areas where there's not as high um, uh, herd immunity, so to speak, because there's insufficient vaccination or people have gotten not gotten COVID enough times. Uh, I hate to say it that way uh, to develop natural uh, resistance to the disease. So um, you know, I know folks are. You know, had an August vacation. I'm sure there's going to be more people traveling, maybe less so, but still some people traveling as we head into holiday season. But, you know, be very conscientious of the fact where you go to may not have the same vaccination or uh, infection rates uh, that um, they'll keep the virus from from spreading uh, at, at a wild rate. So, uh, you know, again, I encourage vaccination, even if you've contracted COVID, uh, it is uh, addressing the XXB, I keep calling BXX, but XXB variant. And the drug makers seem to believe they can uh, move fast enough to create probably another one by springtime to address the newest variants that are are popping up uh, in the late summer. Yeah, that was the whole uh, idea behind this new mRNA technology, right, is they could could kind of customize them very quickly as to what what virus is out there. Yeah, I like to stress this mRNA, not DNA. It's two different things. So the RA messenger is taking strands uh, of basically half of DNA, for lack of a better term, the key components to identify the virus. And the messenger sends it to your immune system to say, look out for this. Hence, messenger. It sends a messenger 
RNA, the RNA relative parts of what you're looking for. In this case, it's those little spiky proteins that you see in graphics. And your body's on the lookout for the same spiky proteins. They don't actually introduce um, the DNA of uh, the virus. They only introduce the key sections of the RNA to tell your body to know what to look for in order to kill it. So hence the word Marsinger. The, uh, mutate, as you all discovered, things mutate and mutate fast. Evolution continues, so to speak. And uh, they have to update the vaccines as they analyze new viruses to determine what uh, parts of their genome, basically specific sections that carries the code for the things your body needs to look for to go kill. Uh, so your immune system does, the goal is to get your immune system out on, you know, kill these things as they get into your system before they cause major damage. Um, and that's what essentially is. People have these real misconceptions about what's going on. And they always say, well, it's not like conventional vaccines. Conventional vaccines have an inactive virus. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit different. You have, a, you have a virus that is not per, per se dead because viruses aren't dead or alive. It's a very curious symbiotic uh, thing that I don't even know, no one really is clear what it is in terms of it's dead or alive because it can't exist without you. But, you know, the idea of an inactive virus um, is not dead viruses, it's not on. And uh, they would have an interest the entire um, inactive virus, and your body would have to try to decipher on its own, try to figure out on its own what the message is. Um, and that's been the traditional vaccines, and the majority of people respond well. Messenger RNA does it in such a manner where uh, it's such a targeted message uh, to your body for something specific. The odds improve that your body's immune system will kick in properly as soon as it identifies uh, the invader, so to speak, inside your inside your body. So um, mRNA is considered a more effective teaching method for your body. And, uh, and Moderna is right now working on a couple of uh, uh, messenger RNA uh, technology for things like melanoma. And I uh, you know, heard this morning they're trying to get the stage two processes for, for lung cancer. Mm. Uh, lung cancer is extremely common. So... You know, if they can convince your body to look for cancer cells, uh, customized by taking your cancer cells, identify what the cancer sensor, cancer cancer sense cells are, the cancer cells are take the mnra out of it with the right markers of the mnra, just send those specific markers into messenger uh, to your body. Then your body's like, oh, this doesn't belong. My body has created a can a cell that's mutating into cancer. Let's kill this thing before it gets worse. Yeah, it's pretty exciting technology. I mean, if, if there is a silver lining to the pandemic, it, it just might be that, you know, that the technology uh, develops to treat cancer and, and cure cancer. Yeah, I talked about this a few uh, on here before, but, you know, I visited, a, you know, well, actually quite a few biotech labs, it feels like now, and technology labs before COVID hit. And, you know, there was actually already technology about custom growing your own cells in Petri dishes. Mm -hmm to uh, then introduce uh, drugs to those cells in these petri dishes to try to gauge what your body response would be to this to these drugs meaning that you won't have to take a drug they'll, they'll create like a liver cell sample give it drugs see if the how your liver cells react before giving mm -hmm. it to you this is revolutionary in the sense that it accelerates the process where they're taking the cancer cells from your body identifying that cancer cells and customize a message to your body just for you for your specific uh, a genome for your specific a cancer uh, RNA uh, and uh, attack it directly as opposed to uh, people who uh, may have a, a cancer mutation occur rapidly and the treatment will, have, will not uh, reveal signs of whether treatment effectiveness, you know, for up to three to nine months in some instances, depending on your PET scan, MRA, CAT scans, bio, biopsy, blood tests, you know, and those who, who care for cancer patients know or have cancer. I mean, there's a lot of testing involved. There's always a delay. You have to wait for effectiveness. So if, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, and other companies are able to uh, take your cancer cells, decipher the code, uh, and identify markers they need to tell your body, they're not giving back your cancer. You're just going to take out the pieces of his body, look for these things and kill it. And it does it effectively. Um, your, your treatment options will be uh, super duper tailored to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, you know, traditional chemotherapy where you just kill everything and start over. Yes, that, that's very true. And also the fact that it's one size fit all chemistry, right? Yeah. Uh, right now, uh, cancer meds and a lot of medications are one size fit all. They're designed specifically for you. 
I mean, that's that's for you. I'm sorry. They're designed specifically for a demographic based on their um, testing, uh, the trial tests. Uh, so it's not customized. And, you know, when I was at the AIPI uh, and uh, state legislators uh, conference last uh, October, you know, we talked about this and testing and, and uh, vaccines and uh, the underrepresentation of the vast majority of the American public um, is not part of trial testing. So, for example, Asian Americans are almost non-existent in, in parts of the testing. Uh, Latinos, Hispanics, almost non-existent as part of the testing. It's predominantly uh, Caucasians, uh, Europeans, um, and not, but they're not even a large part of the Black community either. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is actually part of the um, thing about trial studies. It doesn't represent the whole population, and we're not all the same people inside of us. So, you know, having a broad demographic of, you know, age, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, health, but also ethnic makeup uh, is crucial for uh, these kind of broad shot vaccines. If MRA turns to be successful with cancer, um, you may not need that type of uh, broad shot testing. Uh, you, you are now customizing it specifically for your uh, disease uh, to try to help you specifically, your body to help fight it off. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Really, is it's, it's space age stuff we're talking about here. It's very exciting. You know, perhaps in the next five years, you know, certain types of cancer, your uh, lifespan may improve. Uh, again, because of targeted medicine, medicine designed for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what's going on in Beacon Hill these days, Jackie? Honestly, not a lot. Uh, <laughs> I've uh, returned to my meeting schedules if people want to discuss bills and committee and also activists and lobbying groups to act, activists and lobby, whatever they're interested in. And obviously the email has been coming in about asking for governor overrides on things like the Head Start program, housing programs, the QCAP, and many others. So um, we're kind of waiting for the schedule to come up in the speaker's office, um, you know, and uh, obviously Senate President's office. Uh, and uh, yeah, so kind of waiting out. In the meantime, you know, we have tentatively scheduled hearings uh, for October in my committee. I say tentative because we haven't put the notices out officially yet. Um, and uh, we're communicating with uh, membership, uh, House and Senate members about various uh, local initiatives, their so-called home petitions right now, trying to gauge what's going on and what what, what is really going on um, until we ask our questions, we don't understand what they're trying to get to. And uh, my committee gets a lot of late file. So there's a distinct possibility we may do another, I refer to as cleanup late file hearing, uh, probably sometime in November, depending on the volume and maybe again uh, in the early spring. So we're, the committee uh, staff and I just started to plan out. Uh, we already plan about now. It's kind of a funny gig, right? You kind of like have this long plan of what you like to do, but then as you get closer, things keep changing on you. So they were constantly readjusting the stuff. So I have like this massive outline of my brain back in like February. And then by the time it gets to August, it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> this is just the reality of life, people. Just because you have this massive plan that you think would be perfect in February, you get to August, September, October and realize, well, maybe we should adjust this plan. Uh, let's talk a little bit. Actually, today, uh, September 13th, um, is when the uh, National Guard is being deployed to some of the uh, uh, migrant hotels uh, across Massachusetts. I think 250 members of the Guard are being deployed um, because of the state of emergency that exists right now. Um, and as, as you well aware, Tacky, there's a, a welcome center here in Quincy, different than the hotel shelters, I know, and a major public hearing about that last night. Yeah, let me see if I can break this down. Uh as best I can here. So Quincy has a welcome center and a temporary housing facility uh, at the Eastern Nazarene College. I think we all know that, but I think the problem people run across is twofold. What is a welcoming center and what is the status and the state of this? As you reported, there was a closed door meeting with the Lieutenant Governor and various secretariats regarding the statuses. And um, I will not pretend that the members were not happy uh, regarding this. It was clearly a degree of frustration regarding information flow from the governor's folks to us and consistent messaging what's going on. Um, and the membership uh, was not um, happy, uh, to say the least. Uh, there was a real frustration. And uh, I can tell you that my colleagues are not frustrated the migrants themselves. We're very sympathetic as a body on the matter uh, because it's a human crisis. And we believe that every human being should be treated uh, with dignity. Um, this is a pretty much universal thing about uh, folks on Beacon Hill. 
Um, the problem is that when we want to be helpful, we don't understand how to be helpful. Uh, and uh, just doing stuff on your own guessing is generally a recipe for disaster. So in Massachusetts, 80 cities and towns are now hosting approximately 6,200 migrant families and counting with an average arrival rate of between 25 and 50 families a day. Um, Quincy is not a, a, a shelter facility in the sense that they are not here to be uh, in a location for extended period of time. We're trying to decide where to go next. Uh, it is a processing center. I don't want to use that word. It sounds actually mechanical, but that's what it is. It's a center for folks to come in, check in, get a health check, you know, confirm vaccination status if possible. Uh, if not, you know, Manna Community Health will proceed to uh, make sure the health checks record the severe health problems. You know, they will get sent to Boston Medical Center. Um, and then uh, they'll stay about three to five days or so. And then they'll be sent to an, uh, a shelter somewhere else in one of these 80 communities. So it's not hard to do the math. We know there's not equal distribution, but it's 6,200 families. And we say there's four members per family for the sake of easy math. Um you know, looking at over 25,000 and more uh, uh, individuals that's coming to state. Um, if you say it's a little higher, five person, obviously it gets you over, you know, 30,000, uh, 32,000 plus. Um, and uh, given the rate of arrival, we're, we're kind of looking at perhaps 10,000 families potentially by end of October at the current pace. Uh, the federal government is not setting them up here. Uh, they're here on emergency temporary visas. Uh, as part of crises, this is not new. Um, because if you all can look at the news in Haiti, it's not a good place. Uh, and these folks are fleeing uh, the potential of being murdered. Uh, I'll give you another example of a temporary visa group that I've been dealing with or working with for many years now is the Nepalese. The Nepalese uh, population settled here, several thousand of them settled in Massachusetts as a result of an earthquake that literally flattened uh, those communities. When I say flattened, I mean it's under a mountain now. Um, and as a result, uh, they are here on temporary visa. In their case, it was two years. Uh, their visas were expiring and they were looking for extensions because these homes were under a mountain. Um, as a you know, as humanitarian and, and uh, generous country that we are in terms of trying to be helpful, um, you know, Falco needs to figure out what to do with, with the Nepalese people. Uh, that you know, literally have no, literally don't have a home. So, you know, it's a similar situation here. Obviously, you're aware of the Afghan situation. You're aware of the Ukrainian situation, and they are also both here um, in, in Massachusetts. Uh, we were we have about two thousand plus last year of Afghans and uh, Ukrainians, and probably I don't know what the count is in twenty twenty three. Uh, because obviously we're dealing with the current migrant crisis. So this emergency shelter issue is not just uh, Haitians. It is, uh, as you can hear, you know, over 2,000 others. It's just that when you look at 6,200, it kind of dwarfs the 200. Quincy has processed over 350 plus families in and out of the uh, ENC, the Eastern Nazarene College, and uh, it's designed to rotate uh, in and out 50 odd families, give or take a few. Yeah, so 350, not complicated. You only had seven-ish cycles of people moving through here, going to other communities. Some communities are housing well past 200 uh, families. And it was brought up last night, you know, are they just dumping it in a working-class community like ours? The answer is no. Uh, there are uh, wealthier communities, uh, Concord being one that comes straight to my mind to the top, uh, that are housing migrants. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you go to Concord, they don't have a human service network because it's Concord. They are well off. So the National Guard is helping to move people around the state and try to see if they can find human service organizations that can service outside their territory, because why would you go to Concord as a human service organization and uh, provide um, assistance and transport, things like food, transport to uh, medical checkups. Uh, for example, we don't need folks bringing in um, more dis more viruses um, and also uh, get human service organizations out to them. So it's a work in progress. I think is the best way to put it. It's not perfect. And it probably is going to be a lot of trial and error moving through this process. In the interim, the state is looking for more places um, 
to uh, shelter migrants. Quincy is not a city that's going to shelter migrants, meaning they're not going to be here in our school systems. Um, they're going to, you know, again, they're rotating through. Uh, so other communities I know, like Lowell, the struggling of the idea of having uh, migrants to try to figure out if they can, um, not just the city, but also the human service network can absorb more uh, people into their service area. Uh, this is a struggle for many communities where uh, people are not saying they don't want to be helpful, but they're trying to figure out how to be helpful the best they can. The big problem we're going to have is that uh, this hotel service is something that literally has pushed back against way back uh, to the Deval administration, to the Deval Patrick administration, where the 2009 crisis, uh, 2008, 9, 10 fiscal cliff, uh, you may all remember, resulted in an enormous amount of homelessness and foreclosure in homes. Hopefully many of uh, who are old enough remember how bad that was and we were sheltering families uh, in the um, hotels. And they were pretty much there until almost 2017. When we, where the uh, Baker administration really started to um, put an end to this hotel shelter program and develop a permanent housing transition program. And the, the Mercy Shelter Program is designed specifically for families uh, who have children, small children, as well as pregnant individuals that need Mercy sheltering now in a temporary basis. Um, and uh, their cause of homelessness has no cause of their fault. I also remind folks that does nothing to do with the housing authorities. We do get a lot of phone calls in my office asking for uh, to get moved on the list. Big surprise, right? That's what they ask. Uh, let's be honest, people. You think they call up and say, hey, you know, I need to get a housing authority. Can you move me on the list? No, I can't move you on the list. It's it's a, it's a process in itself. But uh, I, I guess you guys can imagine those type of phone calls I get. Uh, you can only get uh, public housing in Massachusetts if you're a permanent resident or you're a citizen, not a visa holder. So it does not affect the public housing lists. Uh, we can always sit and debate about whether they do a good job on identification, but uh, that is the uh, that is how it is. Uh, you have a permanent resident or a visa holder. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not visa. Permanent resident, you're a citizen. You cannot be a visa holder. So you know that is. Um, that is how that's that's how it's supposed to work. I can't speak to every housing authority doing it correctly, but that that's the law. Um, and then uh, you know, obviously, we are not getting much federal money. We heard from the administration that they got two million dollars in assistance to address this issue, which is a drop in the bucket. Uh, you know, Stales News Service has reported this could potentially be forty five million dollars a month. This is why we don't like the hotel service, um, and they're running on a thirty day ish contracts. Uh, I think it's a little confusing because it's not clear for the hotel contracts specifically. You know, Eastern Nazarene has a one-year contract, uh, but the hotel's a little bit tricky because the idea is that you're not supposed to keep them there forever, but they don't have a solution of how to address the issue right now. So this is a real quandary for the legislature. We just don't know enough about what the plan is. Um, and uh, these folks are coming in on plane, train, you know, an automobile for lack of a better term. And, and, um, yeah. So uh, we've been taking uh, uh, some uh, media hits regarding 1983 law of right to shelter. Uh, I will say this very simply. If the right to shelter law wasn't in place, they'll be living on the streets. Let's just be very clear on that. And uh, in the 08 uh, fiscal cliff, when people were foreclosed on homes, it wasn't for the home, uh, family shelter, uh, emergency shelter program and right to shelter in 08, 09, 010. Uh, you think you have sufficient homeless folks around you. Can you imagine the volume of uh, people be out there on the street if, if because of the foreclosure situation? So, you know, that's what's keeping them out of the streets. Uh, we all know that some folks will not take assistance. I think we all aware of that, that you can't force people to. Um, and also uh, with these migrants, they come from a very bad situation. Uh, they had to flee. They had to protect themselves and probably had to do some things you never have to ever imagine to do to keep your children alive. And uh, let's say it's very simple. It's not in their best interest to be problematic. It's interesting. The governor um, asked the Secretary of Homeland Security to change, I guess, the work authorization process to help these folks get jobs quicker. 
Yeah, we, we, we have a labor shortage nationally. That's no different from here. Uh, and the faster we get them jobs, the faster we can transition somehow into a more uh, non-hotel housing situation. Let's put it that way. So, for example, uh, you may not be aware your service in the Cape might have been very slow this summer. Uh, the temporary work visas for the Cape was still a mess uh, left over from both the Trump administration and COVID combination. Uh, the idea of having um, folks that need jobs as they try to move into some housing solution uh, is very appetizing for uh, a lot of industries uh, in Massachusetts who are looking for help. Um, you know, people always say, oh, we'll take jobs away from other folks. But if you think the job's so good, why aren't you doing it? Right. I'm a very one of those people that, you know, don't talk. You go do it yourself and come back and tell me. So uh this this is as you can hear the size of my size of my sign uh, is a real frustration from the state standpoint that we can't get these work visas they if they you know temporary visa holders can get uh, work status i mean i was just brought in nepalese right you know, they're doing that for the afghans they're doing that for ukrainians uh so we we are very frustrated with the um the federal government on on a number of levels and uh, i think i still think the feds treat this very poorly they treat it as a national security issue and that's not a humanitarian issues. Most countries look at this as a humanitarian issue regarding overstretching the, their ability to handle in, uh, people coming in, not uh, putting armed guards trying to keep people out. Mm. And uh, and again, not all countries same. For example, the Pol Poland uh, welcome of open arms Ukrainians, mm -hmm. but then you know shut the doors on the Syrians or bust the Syrians across the country to drop it on the Germans. So. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> pretty straightforward, which I said. Um, so I think people should not think this is uniquely American behavior. I, I guess it's unclear to me, anyway, as to that the process for, um, you know, taking migrants from the border, um, getting them into the system, and then kind of distributing them across the country you know what how does that process happen how is it determined or where they go and how they get there well this is actually kind of a mystery as well because not all visa holders are same there's like like almost 200 visa statuses in the u.s it is ridiculously complicated in this country of immigration i mean when my parents got here in the 60s very easy to understand <laughs> Yeah, here's your qualifications. Here's how you qualify. Here's how you do sponsorships. And this is what you have to do to get the permanent resident status and how long you have to be a permanent resident before you get your citizenship. It was actually very straightforward. Now it's a complete cluster of disasters because no one really understands it. And it's always an evolving issue. So let's see if I can see how much I really know about this because I don't think I really know much about this. So this they come to the border, the process of the border. I see, you know, we'll be out there and um, they do the screening regarding safety and who they are, where they are and identifying documents, if there are any. And if they feel that they meet the status of a temporary emergency visa because of the situation, what's going at home, they'll grant them a visa. One of the big problems in this situation is that unlike um, flying in Afghans and Ukrainians, um, or Afghans in particular, because the nature of the EVAC for the United States, it has a more accurate example, uh, you know, the U.S. government is now responsible for the Afghan population that fled, and uh, they would be uh, trying to find locations to put them specifically. What I'm getting, what I'm understanding thus far is that in this situation, they come off the border, they get the temporary status, and then the federal government just kind of like lets them go in the sense that mm. there's guidance, not like in the sense that we're going to grab you, stick in a bus, and send you someplace. It's more like there's no like guidance of what's supposed to happen next. And I told a story before about immigration uh, a court, too. Uh, if you've been rejected by the immigration court to stay in the U.S., there's no guidance. They just kind of like say, we're done with you. And they just like you walk out and then you're like, uh, now what? Because there was no guidance about who they report to or where they need to go. They just kind of like leave you in the courthouse steps and like, good luck. And it's like, I've been rejected. Good luck. And now what? Right. So this sounds very similar to. To some of those stories, you know, I hear in the federal level where it's like, oh, yeah, great, you're here, we dump you and run, and you're done. It's 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 rather irresponsible to start with. 
Um, and you got folks that are just like, okay, now what? And right. um, well, there's nothing here for me here because there's no no nothing here where I'm standing at the processing center. Let's go somewhere. Right. So it's left up to the local communities and the states to to deal with it. And that's correct. As these individuals move around the country, uh, the consequences are pay, paid for by citizen towns and, and the state uh, with no knowledge or understanding. Now, mind you, you know, we do get about 60,000 influx of students a year on average. Mm-hmm. This includes just undergrad and graduate, but also teaching faculty day here, or, you know, visiting faculty and whatnot. Uh, the state, you know, is about seven-ish million people. We rotate 60,000 people-ish um on a regular cycle and seasonal level plus we have you know hundreds thousands of tourists mm-hmm. come through the state on a temporary status because they just come in and come out in short periods but this is very different right between the afghans the haitians um any other folks um that are right. yeah that are students are, teachers are, tourists they all have a place to go back to <laughs> they, yeah they, they all come transit through uh, this is very different because ukrainians you know haitians Afghans and any other demographic comes in, um, the temporary temporary visa status. And yeah, they kind of just don't know what to do. That's what the welcome centers are there for, to try to provide some guidance what to do, which the federal government should have done as part of processing. Again, humanitarian crisis versus a security matter. Right, right. Yeah, I know we talked about this before, is they need to be welcome centers at the borders, you know, (laughs) when meet these people where they're coming. Yeah, and a plan to coordinate with with the states, right? You know what what the states are going to, you know, what, what what where can we get ready? And you know, and the feds have put all this money in infrastructure and, and semiconductors. That's great, mm-hmm. but I mean, uh, at what point did anyone think about the fact that you know can you help the states out? And this is the disconnect uh, you're hearing from me regarding Washington D.C. and like everybody else, right? It's not just disconnect at your kitchen table. So disconnect with local government and state governments regarding things they do, and they just kind of walk away like, oh, not my problem. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's that's kind of what led to some of the emotions that came out of last night's meeting um, at Central was it the lack of communication, you know, between the state and the city, uh, the, the city and the community. Yes, I didn't attend the improv Beachwood meeting back in August. I actually was flying home when that was happening. I was in transit to get home. I was on the Logan Express bus before uh, after the meeting already started. And you guys know the summer tunnel was closed in August. So let's say it wasn't a speedy, um it wasn't speedy getting home. Um, but I do recommend the Logan Express is vastly better than trying to get to Uber, who doesn't want a service to, when the sun was closed. Um and uh, I heard that was re- much more heated uh, from multiple persons and uh, much more visceral. Uh, I actually uh, thanked the mayor uh, for this meeting, which was much more um, civil, uh, much more, um, how to put this way, structured. That's the best way. The mayor uh, did a great job structuring the meeting. And as I was telling my friends, he did a good job keeping the lid on the pot, so to speak, so it doesn't the water doesn't boil over. Uh, and also Secretary Augustus and Secretary Walsh uh, from Housing and also and also Secretary of Human Services, which is Walsh, Secretary Walsh, you know, came by and, and uh, you know, did the best answer the questions, uh, made it clear that Quincy was not singled out by any stretch you just heard. 6,200 families, we got 52-ish. We're not been singled out by any stretch. And obviously, uh, based at Community Services and the ENC, um, doing the best to answer questions as well. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of frustration about the audience about what they should and should know. But I'm going to remind people once again, and this is kind of the thing that everyone keeps losing sight of. One, um, the ENC's always had apartments. They've been filled. They've impacted our community. No public meeting. They're still being used as apartments. Uh, they've helped people like Quincy College regarding temporary shelter situation for, well, I wouldn't call it temporary shelter, but temporary transitional situation, right, for, for Quincy College at one point in time. Um, uh, it, they had a greater impact when they had those apartments full in the city than they are, than it's what's going on right now, because those folks could be staying for a full school year, and they may have children going to go into the school system. So you could have potential, that you know, there's actually 70 apartments, they could have a potential up to 70 families uh, any given school year that impacted our community. Okay, remember that, guys. That's what I'm putting in context for you all. Here we have a situation where we have 50 apartments that are there between three and five ish days. They're going to be someplace else like Concord, 
with Springfield, Worcester, and you know, Provincetown, you know, over and over other communities, right? So they're coming in, health check process, get on the bus, we're going to somewhere else, or whatever transport the National Guard's gonna provide. And uh, people want a public meeting there, which I understand because you know you have a um, a new service that's different on private property or a private contract uh, that isn't this responsibility of the, of the city. Actually, it has no responsibility for this. Uh, but at the same time, though, uh, you've had in the past uh, apartments there that had families that potentially impact our school system because they introduced new kids to the system. Uh, and uh, in my lifetime living here, because I'm ten minutes from. ENC and you all know, you know, I showed up a lot of community meetings long before I got elected. Never attended one community meeting about the impact of ENC families coming in. So you may not buy this argument. That's fine, but the logic is is sensible if you think your way through it. Well, I think it's indicative of the divisiveness of the issue of immigration in this country. Well, it's also who you're immigrating from. I mean, again, you know, unfortunately, we had uh, NC, NSC 131. Uh, it's like you say, I'm a very patient person. People have told me, no, I'm fairly patient. Now, I draw the line of Nazis and white supremacists. I really have no patience for these folks. I mean, I've, you know, certain things I have no patience for. And they actually refer to these folks as African invaders. Now, let's not ignore the part African. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the white supremacists uh, and the Words change over time, and those of us old, are old enough to know these words have changed, and now the words African and uh, Central American invaders. Um, this is not new. Uh, Chinese invasion is not a new statement from my childhood. And the Asian invasions, you know, Japanese invasions, I mean, it's not new to me. It's, it's just that people who have never experienced it think it's new. So uh, it attracted an element that had that was not um, instigated by the migrants or ANC or the city or the state or any of the neighbors. These folks came in on their own. And nobody in Quincy, to my knowledge, uh, encouraged nor invited white supremacists to our neighborhoods, uh, which caused greater and more dangerous disruption by carrying lit flares in a residential area. Uh, thankfully, the grass is wicked wet because it was a thunderstorm on Saturday, uh, which I why actually side note, I missed Chowderfest because I was awake and got back in Quincy in time for massive thunderstorms. So I'm sorry I missed Chowderfest as a quick side note. Uh, but yeah, thankfully, you know, the ground was so wet. One flare in a dry day, if this was a dry day, could have been much more tragic for the neighbors. Yeah. It's true. It's something I hadn't thought of, but that's very true. Absolutely. The mayor talked a little bit about, um, you know, public safety and um, the police responsibilities uh, and to monitor situations like that and, you know, to take action if um, legal lines are crossed. Well, my understanding is they never actually crossed onto the uh, ENC property. My understanding they also stayed off residential property. They stayed in the public way. Uh, the, these uh, folks uh, are um, pretty good in the First Amendment stuff. Uh, in terms of knowing where they can and cannot be. Um, that also being said, um, the flares do trouble me because, right, you know, you guys will remember the days of, uh, some of you may remember the days of torches uh, uh, <laughs> with people wearing white sheets um, over their faces. Now it's black ski masks and flares. Um, uh, in some states, by the way, you may not be aware of this, but uh, wearing anything that looks like a Ku Klux Klan is automatically a hate crime. Hmm. I did not know that. Yeah, and, uh, I can't remember the Massachusetts state uh, hate law statute. It's been a little while since I looked at it, but I don't think Massachusetts, I don't think, I got to look at it again, but I'm trying to remember whether or not wearing Klan outfit automatically constitutes, but in other states, yeah. So this is a national organization, obviously receiving information on a national level. They'd like to provide information on a uniform level to all their locals. This is an organized group. This isn't just spontaneously people having a couple of drinks and decide to put on a ski mask and bring it flare to your neighborhood, actually our neighborhood, I, grew, I do live here. So it is our neighborhood in this case uh, to cause um, some disruption. Um, so uh, the fact that they're using, using black ski masks and uh, flares as opposed to torches and cooks, uh, Ku Klux Klan outfits, uh, you know, is an indicator that, you know, they are very knowledgeable about uh, the laws in other states and many states are gonna hate crime law, very knowledgeable about how the first amendment works. Um, Again, uh, the torches, kind of, uh, the flares 
you know, substitution for torches, right? Uh, you know, it, it's harder to make the connection of some states regarding you know, the hate crime statute. Mm. Hmm. Let's uh, change topics a little bit, Tacky. How about that? Sure. Always happy to talk about anything. I had the um, the director of the uh, Massachusetts State Lottery uh, on our, our program not too long ago, and he's pretty certain uh, over the period of time that uh, the lottery will be going online to some degree. What do you think? Well, another local kid does good, right? Mark Bracken is a local kid, guys. So it's always good to see uh, homegrown, homegrown kids do great in government. Um, yeah, we talked about the online lottery before. Uh, I agree it's inevitability. Um, the lottery, again, had a bumper number of record sales like it consistently does. Uh, the fear the lottery has is changing consumer habits will, will, will not keep up with sports betting and other online forms of entertainment. I still have a disagreement about that because I do not believe uh, people's taste regarding entertainment is transferable. If you uh, like to bet on sports, unless you see a billion dollar mega ticket uh, on the, the Powerball or um, mega, what is it? Powerball and mega millions. millions. Yep. You're not inclined to buy a lottery ticket. So, you know, they think this is a, a way of uh, getting consumer transfer because all gamblers are, are the same. Gamblers are not the same. Uh, it is specific taste, specific interests driven. And, uh, you know, as we get to, again, it looks like almost $600 million, right, coming up on, I don't know which one, but one of them is going to be $600 million soon. You know, the ticket sales are going to tick up again, which also yep. benefits a lot of people. But, uh, you know, but that'll be like a spare change situation. Someone's like, okay, I'll do this. But the Patriots are now playing again. And uh, I think your people uh, who are sports bettors uh, are going to do a Sunday game parlay, uh, are probably going to parlay, not go online to buy a lotto ticket mm. or play a lotto yeah. instant scratch or play a lot. Yeah, that, that, that was his argument too, is that it, 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 if anything, it, 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 it increases lottery sales rather than decreases them. Yeah, but not. But it's. But the problem is that they can stay. Uh, they believe it's transferability of gambler dollars. Right, right, right. There's no transfer. There will be no transferability of gambler dollars. And I'll give you a greatest example. Back in the uh, Finneran era, when he was speaker during the mid '90s, uh, he was vehemently against casino gambling or expansion of slot machines at the racetrack. Vehemently against it. So the uh, speaker Finneran contracted a. Um, research company to talk about whether or not they have adverse impact on the lottery. Lottery is one of the strongest lotteries in the country. Mm -hmm. 1972. Um, I read the report as a staffer multiple times now, uh, back then, and uh, they had stated that the lottery faced a 10% decline in sales as a result of the uh, casinos coming. Um, they did this by changing the metrics in the formula. So when you do a research study, you usually get one formula through the whole thing and you just put mm -hmm. in the variables, not change the formula midway through to meet the facts you're trying to accomplish. And uh, that's how you have bad studies. You need at least, you have to keep it consistent through the study, the formula you're going to use as you plug the numbers in. Like the scientific method, same thing. Yeah. Yep. So uh, since then, we've had casino gambling, essentially, let's call it seven years because COVID was weird. And um, lottery sales, bumper crops, bumper crop of lottery sales, folks. So I was breaking all kinds of revenue records. Yeah. Yep. That's why when I staffed, I didn't believe, and I did a lot of casino and res uh, gaming research when I staffed for Michael Morrissey. Trust me, he and a lot of folks that know this system as well as I do at a policy level, um, that it wouldn't have zero impact on a lottery because a lottery is a mature lottery. The studies cited areas where the lottery and the casinos came to existence within a five-year period of each other. So you had an immature lottery and a rap and casinos by nature can rapidly mature. Of course, the lottery failed mm -hmm. because they uh, couldn't compete with a rapid mature uh, casino and you had no time as a lottery to develop a customer base. Right. Massachusetts has been developing customer bases since 1972 and uh, the casinos, even though rapidly matured, uh, you know, again, transfer, transferability of, of consumer dollars, right? Consumers that we're going to play the lottery, we play the lottery. Those who don't are, going, are not. So the second arm of online gambling, and I'm sure Mark went through this, is attracting new customers. Yes. Yeah. It was, I know, it was I, 
Yeah, I love it when the state talks about trying to attract people to a vice, right? So, uh, I know you can tell I don't love the lottery. In certain- well, he did talk about being responsible and 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 you know all of the uh, all the things that he should talk about. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys can all tell by a bit of uh, sarcasm here. Uh, a lot of me out of my voice. I'm not oblivious to the negative effects of these things. I think people right. have this misconception. I am just a one-sided thinker. Uh, I am not. I'm not oblivious to the consequences of uh, of things like this. So the question is, if you have someone, let's say, is uh, 24 years old, um, and you give them a DraftKings app and a lottery app, where is this consumer dollar going to go? Mm. I'm going to tell you, it's going to go to the DraftKings app more often than a lottery app. Hmm. Okay, just because of his age. No, yeah, transferability of dollars. The presumption is I'll gamble on anything. Yeah. That's false. Unless you have a severe addiction, and even those with severe gambling addictions have a um, sin of choice, so to speak. They like specific games. It isn't like you bet on every type of thing that shows up. It isn't like, you know, I'll bet on the changing color of a street light if you offer me a buck, right? That's that's mm-hmm. not how addiction works in gambling. And to have a specific uh, type of stimulus that triggers the addiction, it creates that the dopamine effect of, of addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, gamblers have uh, a specific taste. And addicted gamblers especially have specific tastes. I so the idea is that, you know, you can move one consumer to another because by nature of being anyone who gambles must enjoy gambling on anything. That That is 100% false. Interesting, yeah. Hmm. Well, well, we'll see. It's up to the, I guess it's past the House, but not the Senate. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually part of the state budget. Didn't make it out of conference committee. I have the online lottery bills and committee, folks. That's one, okay. that's one of the many things I do as a chair, committee chair. People wonder why I'm always so tired looking. Uh, I have a lot of things going on in my mind at all times. Uh, um, obviously, House leadership wants to do this um, on the lottery. Uh, I have to um, the uh, second Wednesday in February to get my bills out of committee. Obviously, I have to work with a code chair. You hear me talk about that all the time on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be a supplemental budget, or there will be a supplemental budget in October to close the books. Let's your books. We can talk about that more if you like. Um, and there may be a couple of other pieces of legislation they could act on online lottery in the back of, but you know, maybe next be, week. Yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, maybe. I mean, I'll talk to the leadership as we continue this fall period about what their thought is about how to, you know, how they want to unroll online lottery. I think my culture okay. uh, amical to the idea of doing it, but you know, I have to have a longer conversation with them. And uh, you know, obviously, the Senate didn't want to do it through the through the budget process, so right, yeah. I don't have a clean answer for you because I haven't figured that part out yet. Okay. Um, hey, the governor is coming to Quincy, Techie. Yep, tomorrow the 14th, uh, about 11, 15-ish, depending on her ability to get places on time because of the nature of being a governor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's going to go to Snug Harbor School in Germantown to talk about the universal meal program. Uh, this is something that pretty much everybody supports. Uh, providing universal school meals, both breakfast and lunches. Uh, you may remember during the pandemic, the federal government uh, had provided to a city, uh, actually all states, uh, sufficient COVID money to cover uh, universal school lunch and breakfasts. Um, and then obviously they pulled back the rug. Again, this is one of those things we talked about earlier, about responsibility to feds and dumping it on us. Uh, last year, we were able to um, start the universal meal program and this year's budget, we are able to make it fully. Uh, all meals at, at schools. So Speaker Mariano, um, myself, most likely John, Senator John Keenan might most likely be there as well as uh, Governor Healy uh, to talk about the uh, Universal uh, School Meal Program and the benefit it has for our communities. Uh, those of you who know Germantown, I mean, it's a, one of the more diverse parts of the city. Um, the socioeconomics tend to be a little lower than other parts of the city. But if you uh, know the community, is actually quite a diverse community, not just um, socioeconomics and, and ethnic, but also uh, the different types of homes. If you visit down there, it's, it's actually quite interesting, the different diversity of homes and, and the people living down there. So it's a great spot. I'm very thankful and appreciative they decided to come to my district, my part of Quincy, uh, to announce this program. Um, and then one of the most uh, um, 
reflection of our state parts of the city. Yeah, it's a good way to put it, sure. And uh, QATV uh, plans to be there, too. So we'll bring that to folks uh, sometime next week. Yeah, make sure you don't cut me out of the picture, Joe. Of course not, Tacky. We'll get a full close-up of you, so make sure your hair is combed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do need a cut, but I suspect it won't be till October. My schedule's a little bit nutty uh, okay. in the month of September, so I'm, I'm actually have quite of a non-stop whirlwind for about um, 15 or so days in my schedule. But we will always make time somehow to to be with you, Joe. Uh, but I will definitely comb my hair. I, I promise. <laughs> We'll do it before and after. <laughs> uh, how do we get a hold of you in the meantime? Well, you can reach us at 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. Again, I remind folks, this is Jerry Paracella's office, suite I'm in, which is the chair of Economic Development and Emerging Technologies. He, he gets the top billing on the phone in terms of an automated system. We do have people answering the phone. Uh, but if it's a busy day, you know, obviously it kicks into the automated system. So, you know, uh, smash a button, get to a staff staffer at this point, just hit anybody. And uh, if they're there, they're there. If not, you know, you get the voicemail. And then uh, nowadays they show up on our phones because they email us the voicemails. Uh, yeah, I know technology, right? Um, and then uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. If you send us an email at tackey.chan at gov. You know, my email box is somewhat sane at the moment, which it won't be probably in two weeks as I get close to public hearings. Um, all committee testimony to the committee also comes to my email, not just your emails, as well as, you know, advocates' emails. So we do our best responding to folks that are immediate need. I see all your public policy requests, believe me, I do. Uh, but, you know, we, we deal folks with immediate constituent problems first. Uh, State Representative Tacky Chan, Facebook. Perhaps be a posting of us together tomorrow, Joe. Uh, over at uh, over that uh, Facebook site, you can see places I've been, put up some useful information, same as at Tacky Chan at X now. <laughs> so Elon Musk X. And uh, obviously state uh, Tacky Chan at OOG, again, an informational page. Uh, there's also a form you can fill out that will come to my email. Um, and then you have the state website, emulegislature.gov. You can look up bills on your own. Um, so time you can sign at times. So the days of me having to uh, I still remember when I used to take phone calls, people were looking for bills, and I would have to go get one from the doctor's room and stick it in the mail for people. Uh, nowadays you can do it yourself. Uh times change. And of course, uh, you can hear Joe in the morning uh at QATV to get the show updates. And uh you can, you know, watch us on YouTube or uh, community access cable or your favorite podcast station. That's right. We've got you covered and coming and going. <laughs> Absolutely. I've noticed the po Joe's been very busy this week, uh, given the volume of podcasts uh, shown up. So I might get lost in the shuffle this time. You may not, uh, you all may not hear me. Oh, no, no, no. We'll always make space for you, Jackie. <laughs> always enough bandwidth for Jackie talk. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Always good to talk to you. Great to see you, Joe. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day.